Hi, welcome to the Beyond Blocks podcast, a podcast about Drupal, open source, and related software development topics. I'm Oliver Davis, and I'm here with my guest, Ed Crompton. Hi, Ed. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, Oliver. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, can you share a bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, so um, I'm a Drupal developer. Um, I've been working with Drupal probably since, well, Drupal 6. Um, I think I saw, I came to um, the web, I suppose, in the early noughties when uh, the, the web seemed to be the answer to uh, a lot of a lot of things, a lot of the world problems. It was going to democratize everything. It was going to sort of spread opportunity throughout the world um, to lots of remote and far-flung places. Uh, so we thought. Um, so I came from yeah. I, I suppose I began as a web developer at that point with quite sort of um, idealistic ideas, a bit wet behind the behind the ears, and. Um, Went went to India for a little bit actually, and um, spent some time learning PHP and um, building a PHP tool um, that was used to gather information about projects in in rural areas in India uh, for an NGO. Um, and then shortly after that, came across came across Drupal and CMSs, and realised that um, what took me months to do badly. Uh, with with plain PHP could be done a lot faster and a lot better with it uh, with something like Drupal. So um, yeah, I've been, been working on Drupal pretty much ever since. Yeah, I think I also came in the Drupal six, late Drupal five days. But I think it was about two thousand and seven, two thousand eight ish. I think. Um, yeah, good old trying to remember some of the modules we had before before then didn't have all the uh they have built things in core but we had things like um multi-block was one um i can't remember all the modules we used to have back <laughs> back then but yeah i'm sure there's a load that will uh send me on a bit of a memory lane trip if i started started looking around but yeah it's interesting to see how drupal has evolved from from the drupal six to seven and then seven to eight and eight plus yeah, I think I was lucky to sort of come on at that time. So I think it was quite easy to learn in your bedroom at that point. Um, I remember because I wasn't working on it full time when I was learning it and just trying to get my head around views and thinking that I'd, you know, understood a big chunk of it. And then I'd come back to it later and would have forgotten, <laughs> forgotten, uh, forgotten what I'd learned. I'd have to, you know, try and get my head back into it. And it just like a constant cycle of trying to do that before, before I managed to land a uh, a full-time Drupal job and then um, I suppose it's easier to accelerate things then because I was working on it full-time so um, what was the reason for going from sort of just web developer to then learning PHP and then going into Drupal um, well PHP sort of made me a web developer really I didn't really I mean I had an awareness of HTML and CSS before that but um, it was PHP really that um you know, I suppose I suppose I realised that web web pages were not just HTML, and that there was actually um, some programming to be done. Um, and I remember the first time I realised I could generate HTML through this programming language, and um, 
just blew my brain. Before then, I think HTML was just something that you wrote by hand. And um, once you'd written it, that that was it. That was what your web page, your website looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually to pre-process that HTML was um, quite a big mental leap for me. And that's I think that's what got me excited about PHP and web development. Mm-hmm. Um, dabbled with other CMSs. Um, worked on Plone for a little bit, which is a Python-based CMS, still about. Um, but yeah, gravitated towards, I suppose, just knowing PHP better than other programming languages, that's why I gravitated towards. Um, and there was a point where I think a lot of people were looking for Drupal and it was seen as, um, well, still is to a certain extent, but to be a Drupal developer was, you know, something that opened a lot of doors. Um, and, you know, I was able to go and uh, join events in London or or volunteer um, for um, hack days and things. Um, and, and Drupal development was very much in demand. So, um, yeah, that's that's how I got into it, really. Yeah, I did something similar, I suppose. I, I started building a website, just a plain HTML, CSS website for a type one school I was training at at the time. Cool. Now my kids are. Um, and this was just HTML and CSS and then started to add more PHP into it and did this through sort of online video courses and YouTube videos probably, but definitely things like um, lynda.com training and some other ones. And then started then there's a forum post that I've linked to in some of my talks where someone had uh, I I posted a question, how do I adapt this PHP code that did uh, add a new page or something? How do I adapt this to also work for I think it was news articles or something? And somebody then said, Well, you could do this, or you could look at something like a CMS, like Drupal or WordPress or something. Um, and that was my first sort of introduction into like this Drupal thing that I didn't really know about until until that point. I didn't know about until that point. And yeah, I, I still get you. Yeah, I see that because I had built this website a few times in just HTML and CSS and then started looking at, it was definitely Drupal 6. Uh, I definitely remember doing Joomla on, on it as well to try and, I'm, I'm sure there's a third one. I can't remember which, which third one was, but I was sort of learning all these things. This was whilst I was doing an IT desktop support job as well. So I can sort of, it was that sort of yes, you could learn it in your own time, sort of in your bedroom or something by yourself. Um, I don't know. I sort of wondered that sometimes with all the new things people need to to learn just to do development in general, whether it's easier or harder or just maybe there's yeah more stuff. You get, get impression it's there's there's m- more barriers now to people just picking stuff up. In, in their spare time if I, I get the impression just stuff like composer i mean composer is actually um you know it's not it's not an easy workflow to get your head around i don't think unless you've got people who can mentor you i mean i suppose youtube helps helps quite a lot um and, and resources like that that we probably didn't have to to the same extent when um we were starting out I mean, I, I certainly bought a lot of books and if stuff wasn't in the book then I didn't find out about it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 
I think um, Drupal 8 probably um, is maybe more difficult for, for to get into as a hobbyist. Yeah, I'd imagine so, just because it's such a big, it was hard to do maybe as a, as a not a hobbyist, I guess, to begin with. Mm. Like, yeah, you can sort of do, I remember going through that transition. At, uh, was definitely working at, well, I remember working at one agency on a project and somebody was working on it and they had only done Drupal 7 at that point. So then we had to sort of explain all these other concepts, as you said, like Composer, but things like dependency injection and service containers and object oriented programming even that were some of them some of it was done in Drupal 7 for the OOP side of things things like views I think but it wasn't the primary way of doing it in, in D7 whereas then moved to D8 and of course to 9 10 etc that's very much at the forefront of things um so yeah it must have been quite different for for everybody um yeah I spent quite a lot of time learning and researching so for me i think yeah, i just spent a lot of time learning so obviously i can't speak for everybody else but i can see why it uh it would be quite different or definitely was different okay uh thing so we're here to talk about oxfam case study today uh so this is something that i think is you were involved with um do you want to tell me a little bit more about about that yeah, so um, it was a project um, that I worked on with Oxfam International. They have they are sort of an um, an umbrella organisation um, for uh, the the Oxfam you might see on a British high street. Um, the, the the shops that you see are run by Oxfam Great Britain. Oxfam International um, provides sort of um, support to um, organizations like Oxfam GB and other affiliates across across the uh, world. Um, but there's also a number of uh, country and regional teams who um, work on projects for the charity um, in certain areas of the world. So um, that could be a country or, or a region comprising of several countries. So um, part of my job was to um, maintain uh, an, an easy way for these country and regional teams to uh, maintain a, a website um, with little technical expertise in a lot of cases. Um, and... Um, country and regional teams tended to be quite small and to be stretched in quite a lot of different directions. Don't really have um, necessarily have a lot of time to um, be doing a lot of editorial on websites, but needed to um, be able to publicize um, projects um, and issues that were relevant specifically to a specific country uh, or region. So, um, Oxfam was already quite, you know, quite heavily invested in Drupal by that point. Um, it's quite a lot of different um, uh, sites across the organisation that were um, Drupal-based. Um, and there was a Drupal 7 
um, uh, multi-site setup um, that was used to provide sites to these regional and, and country teams. So um, that had been around for a while um, and it'd been worked on um, by a lot of different people, a few different agencies. And it was a little bit like fixing or maintaining anything on it was a little bit, a little bit like doing an archaeological dig in that there were various layers of um, complexity and additions that you had to sort of dig through to try and work out um, the the, uh, the the idea behind what you know, how particular features were um, developed or the reasons for taking particular. Um, architectural decisions um so i think the first the first time um when we were given a deadline for um drupal 7 support to finish um we leapt at that chance to um upgrade to drupal 8 with something you know we could now go to um people in the organization holding the purse strings and say look we, we really need to do this because um, we're we're running out of supports uh, in Drupal seven, and we could put a we could put a, a good business case um, based on based on um, security, um, but also um, there there were lots of opportunities that we saw um, uh, for for using um, for upgrading to Drupal eight and and using. Um, features available in Drupal 8. Yeah, it's quite an interesting approach because, as we know, at least at the time of recording this, which is uh, Drupal 7 is still supported for another sort of 12 months or so. So I think that's, that's quite forward thinking to be even sort of back then going, oh, we need to move off Drupal 7. Uh, I've seen a lot of websites and organizations and people still saying well it's supported until january 2024 we're just gonna ride this wave for as long as we can and get the most maybe not the most out of our money for, for using it but yeah that's um so, so what were the main reasons for you back then wanting to sort of upgrade from um was there anything that we sort of stood out well, uh, we'd already upgraded Oxfam.org, so that was already on uh, Drupal 8 at the time. Um, so there was some um, economies to be made in maintaining um, Drupal, only only maintaining Drupal 8, or, or it turned out by the time the upgrade happened, it was Drupal 9. But um, to be upgrading, a, to be maintaining a single version of Drupal, rather than two different versions with different versions of Drush and different um, server setup requirements. Um, that all that all represented, um, cons consolidating that represented quite a big um, e economy in the way that we run things. Um, we also had um, an, an atomic um, design, which we'd... Um, uh, which we'd already implemented on Oxfam.org. That's Oxfam International's main main site, um, and uh, I suppose a lot of uh, uh, the the country and regional sites were beginning to look a bit dated. We didn't want to really invest in um, 
uh, re-theming them with the um, with the atomic um, uh, component-based design that we come up with, um, without also upgrading to uh, the latest version of Drupal as well. Um, and um, at the time when we were putting a business case forward, um, the I, I forget the first deadline for the the, the, the first date for the expiration of support for Drupal 7. Um, but it wasn't, luckily it wasn't until we'd sort of um, committed to the project that that um, got extended because um, I suppose if that had happened before then uh, it might have, it might have been slightly more difficult to put put forward the the business case for it I suppose yeah it's a good point as I've seen even though seven core is still supported I don't think there's nearly as much emphasis or development happening in the contrib space and a lot of modules have sort of been essentially abandoned and then maintainers have focused on Drupal 8, Drupal 9, Drupal 10 versions uh, the last release for d7 version might be some time ago or not even supported anymore so because there's a security aspect there that even though drupal 7 itself is supported it's not getting the security coverage and maintenance that all the other modules that you need still uh, aren't covered yeah uh, and i think there's probably less momentum in in backporting things from Drupal 9 now into Drupal 7 and we're increasingly seeing that that um yeah yeah well as you say Drupal Drupal 7 modules were just not getting the kind of love that um Drupal 8 or 9 ones were at the time quickly okay, now interesting that um atomic design system that you mentioned is that um I'm not sure about my dates and timelines here, but is that something like a storybook type system or a fractal type system where you're building sort of each component as sort of static HTML and sort of having a design system? Yeah, so we were or... using yeah, we were using Pattern Lab, um, okay. which um integrated nicely with with Drupal. Um I've since I hadn't used Storybook at the time, but since have, so I think probably um uh storybook seems like a great solution and probably would um probably would go with that now um um so yeah i suppose the the intention behind the atomic design was that and um, we would have a library of components which could be used across um across oxfam on sites that may not necessarily be drupal based um, quite a lot of WordPress sites, I think one or two Wagtail sites. Um, so the idea was that uh, we could we could maintain this library and have um, be able to promote a more cohesive brand across um, across Oxfam sites. Um, and it also had the the happy uh, advantage that we were able to start theming. Um, theming sites before we finished building in Drupal, um, which traditionally we'd had to, we'd have to wait until we built things, uh, finish things in Drupal uh, and then, and then theme them at that point. So all the theming work got sort of pushed to the back of a project, whereas um, Pattern Lab um, or subsequently Storybook or um, 
other tools like that now allow you to decouple that process so that um you're not your your front end developers are not as reliant on your um on your drupal build before they can start work yeah the one i tend to use is fractal and i like fractal um because you can now it's first party but there used to be a, a third party uh integration for twig so you could build all the templates using twig in fractal um as you said by you know either yourself or by a separate development team and then porting those across is much easier to do from twig in fractal to twig in Drupal 8 or Drupal 9 than having to convert everything from handlebars or whatever the or nunchucks or whatever the other thing was that we looked at used or whatever the default was um but yeah there's various things that um that are used pattern labs yeah i couldn't think of the name but i knew there was another one so i'm glad it was it was that one so you, you'd signed off the business case moving to Drupal 8 what then happened next is it did you start with we mentioned a lot about multi-site is it did you go in thinking you were gonna sort of start with one and then sort of iterate on that or do you sort of think you were going to move so maybe like everything in one go what was the what were the first steps once you decided to to start the Drupal 8 so yeah so I think initially the idea was to go for a big a big bang launch and to um beaver away until everything but until we're ready to launch all these sites uh simultaneously and then um uh yeah we're still going to work we're still going to work in a series of sprints with um with with defined goals for each sprint um but uh but but the the initial sort of assumption was that we would launch all these sites together there's um there were initially about 15 of them um uh i think that's now expanded to around about 20 um and i think we've got seven seven languages um some of which are uh, are right to left uh, like arabic um so um i think that so we our hands were tied slightly because because it was an upgrade project we 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 needed to deliver something that um had as much value as the thing that we were replacing um i suppose if it had been uh you know if the, if there hadn't been any country and regional uh web websites to begin with we could have started out with something really basic and um uh, adopted a bit more of a lean um a lean startup approach i suppose and you know got feedback on something basic and then decided um what other features we wanted to prioritize on top of that um but we didn't really have that luxury because um we couldn't we couldn't really um we couldn't really sell it's not that we're selling but you know we couldn't we couldn't persuade people just in the organization that you know they should they should accept a more basic website uh, than the one they got in drupal 7 so um uh so so there was that and then there was a, there was there was quite a, a big content migration um project leading up to that sort of sub project which um we couldn't really it's not like we could migrate some of the content and then come back and migrate the rest we we, we pretty much had to um migrate everything um and there weren't really economies to be made in um 
there's not there wasn't really anything we could iterate on in that um in that respect of the content migration we just had to go for all or nothing so yeah that was that was the plan originally but then i think we quite quickly um realized that um we, we had uh country and regional teams who were effectively customers because they were they all had their own budgets and they're contributing budget to to the project so they all had um you know they were they all had a lot of interest in the success of the project and um delivering what what they saw as their um priorities in terms of functionality so um we quickly quickly realized we were going to have at least 15 country and regional teams um spread across time zones from uh, south america africa uh, to 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 east asia um which presented a bit of a communication challenge and we realized if we were if we were going to be uh, launching all these sites at the same time um we were probably going to be getting a lot of um support requests from site editors who are maybe not um particularly technical we were also um uh introducing paragraphs as well so there was quite a change in the in the editorial ui which um i i, th I think made um the editorial experience much more powerful but um yeah didn't i suppose didn't do us any favors in terms of minimizing support requests um so everybody and how the new thing works with paragraphs yeah i think as well yeah yeah so um i i think we we stuck with a big bang approach for um for a few months and then we realized that um i suppose i i was giving updates to um to to stakeholders in the project um but i think it was quite obvious to everyone that we didn't yet have anything that we could actually start using that was going to give value to the organization um and that we were still quite a long way off that and so i began to think about what um how, how we could change our strategy to um try and deliver um some some value faster even if we didn't deliver everything at once um and um one thing that was becoming obvious was that uh some of these websites uh especially multilingual ones were a lot harder to migrate the content for than um that than others i think we had about five websites that were um just in english or just a single language um and a lot of the complexity we were seeing around the migration was um uh from multilingual sites i think there's one site in particular um that was very very complicated so um we were beginning to see quite obviously that um working on the more complex um the, the more complex sites were um preventing us from launching um simpler sites um early on so um 
I think that's when um, we just as a as a team <clears throat> um, it was a fairly it was a fairly flat team. We worked with an agency, um, Agile Collective. Um, um, and I, I we made a lot of decisions as a team, and we discussed things quite openly um, as a team business business requirements and how to how to meet them. And I think we started talking about doing things in a um, in more of a batch uh, um, deliver deliver things in in batches rather than this big bang approach that we'd initially envisaged. Yeah. Um, and I think something that I'd read, um, Eric Eric Reese's famous famous lean startup um, book, has got a chapter about small batches and the advantage of small batches, and not only that it allows you to deliver um, some value quicker, but also that it allows you to test and to incorporate feedback much better if you're if you've got sort of a um um smaller iter- iterations on a on a product rather than um just launching it and then trying to incorporate changes um, um after that um so um so so yeah it's at that point we decided we're going to we're going to um concentrate entirely on the simpler sites we made a list of the five simpler sites um, and we also took into account things like where in the world those teams were and whether we could, you know, hold um, hold a training call that everybody could join or whether um, time zones dictated that maybe we'd have to have two or more training calls. So um, we were able to um, uh, economize in that way by grouping um, sites, sites together that were in um, regions. Um, similar regions um we also looked at um site requirements so um some used some content types more than others for example some made really heavy use of a of a calendar with a event content type whilst others just um didn't didn't require that at all um some as i say were multilingual um whereas others weren't so so at, at that point, we were able to um, launch those five sites, and then I think that just gave a massive morale boost to the to the development team because we um, we were able to suddenly show and um, start getting feedback from these teams, and also um, you know what we'd been beavering away on um, it suddenly saw the live day, and um, we were able to you know say look this this is what this is what we've done this is how we're that we i suppose it was easier then to justify the project um to the organization and um um just the whole thing seemed more credible to us and to people that within the organization we're speaking to when we said you know when we laid out this um uh this approach and our subsequent um timeline so we then we then uh were able to uh work on increasingly complex sites um and it was it was harder to group sites together because simple sites we could sort of bung together but then we found that 
um, some sites were quite uh, were quite unique um, and had quite unique um, requirements. So although, um, yeah, I suppose our batch po batch idea even broke down then into launching single sites, but we were able to um, we were able to maintain quite a velocity increase increase of uh, velocity with which we were um, putting sites live. Um, so I think the first five sites all went live together after a few months of development, but then a couple of weeks after that, we were able to launch um, three more, I think. And then by the, um, by the later weeks of the project, we, you know, we were launching um, uh, three or four sites in a week, I think. And we were able to really quickly go from the point of um, when a site was UAT'd by, um, by the country or regional team, we were then able to really rapidly um, to 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 launch that, um, I suppose at that point you've already got sites live. You've already got that code or any custom code in production already. So the amount of opportunity for bugs is going to be that much smaller because it's already being run in production. And then yes. you're only really focusing on the differences between site A and site B, um, and you can give those your sort of full attention rather than rebuilding everything from the ground up each time. So I yeah. imagine it'd be a lot of code reuse and a lot of content type and, and date i suppose if it's it's a multi-site it's going to be using a lot of the same sort of database anyway isn't it because it's going to be using the same content types or the same same views and things i'd imagine yeah yeah, yeah definitely and we knew we knew our we, we knew the teams better um and we we understood requirements better because we'd learned from our earlier yeah. launches um Yeah. How did you go about sort of testing each one? Is is there is a common sort of testing process for site by site? Are we able to? Because that was the problem. How do you know by introducing a site onto a feature onto site A, you've not broken site B, C, and D as well? Is, is, did you have a particular strategy around around that? Or... Yeah, and again, that was that was um, quite an evolution, I suppose, during the course of the project. Um, and I think up until that point, um, I'd used a lot of B hat. Um, B hat seemed to be the the cool, um, tr trendy solution to automated testing. I had a B hat stick on my laptop. Thought that made me cool. Um, and and so and so that was yeah, sort of unquestioning. Well. D didn't question enough, I suppose, the adoption of BHAT. And it was, I mean, um, BHAT's a very powerful tool and it served us well in a lot of respects. Um, but we we built up a lot of BHAT tests on um, Drupal 7 and uh, it was becoming, there was, it was quite obvious that it was quite an overhead in um uh, maintaining these tests and quite often they would be quite um, brittle and not very reliable especially ones that uh, relied on a javascript um, front end so um, rather than the tests failing and telling us something wrong was wrong with the code the tests would fail and we'd think is there something wrong with the code or is the test 
is there like yeah. some weird javascript timing issue that's breaking our tests or and we'd spend a long time debugging um uh tests historically especially with, with other projects i suppose Ox, oxfam um dot org um suffered from that a little bit so um i think about the time that i was struggling with that i read a blog post um by um Fener proxima i think um a acquia developer who who had sort of been through this thought process and i think probably been abusing b hat in the same way that 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 i had and sort of assuming that b hat was something that it wasn't in the same way that it definitely that really chimed with um with um what my realization was i suppose um and i, I that's that's what helped me realize that b hat is great for acceptance tests and it's designed for acceptance acceptance tests and um it's very powerful if you have non-technical people who need to write acceptance tests in plain english but the situation we got into was that we didn't have those people we didn't have non-technical people writing those tests developers were writing those tests um and then we thought well this has got value because uh if we write these tests in plain english then it also serves as documentation which was to a certain extent true but then the problem was we were then writing a lot of um background code to make the the plain english layer um work um so we had developers uh we had developers writing a sort of the glue code to make bhat work and then we had the de same developers writing the bhat tests so yeah. um yeah that, realize that, that you need you need php code to make that work or <laughs> into the bhat scenario you know i guess if you're using a different implementation of gherkin for something else you'd still need code underneath to make it do the thing um, yeah yeah, so what's the best I mean, tool for the job, I suppose. I suppose we could have sort of narrowed our tests to do only what um, BHAT would do out of the box. Um, but we were then trying to write um, regression tests uh, using BHAT, which is, in hindsight, a complete misuse of, of, of BHAT. So um, that's um at that point um someone on the team suggested using drupal test traits we were also we, we were already using php unit for 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 some um in small small cases for unit tests so we knew how fast those tests ran and we knew that another issue was not just debugging these tests but that the bhat tests were taking ages to run so you could make a pull request you'd want to run your tests on that pull request um and you'd be waiting a couple of hours for those to run uh whereas the php unit test you'd be waiting a couple of, a, few, a few seconds or, or or minutes for those to run so um yeah so we started adopting drupal test traits in place well to a certain extent in place of bhat um i suppose we didn't try to test as much as we were testing with bhat i think the emphasis was um we realized that the emphasis needed to be far more on um writing 
reliable, useful tests than trying to test everything. Um, so a lot of the stuff that we were trying to test with BHAB, but failing miserably, we just um, we we just didn't. We we stopped testing and started building up a new um, test suite in Drupal using Drupal test traits and PHP units. Um, which was much faster, much more reliable. And we weren't really, there wasn't that much value in our plain English tests because they weren't particularly plain English anyway. We ended up with stuff with tests that, you know, would would have like um, uh, IDs of HTML elements in the plain English test, which kind of defeated the object. They were just not readable yeah. anymore. Um yeah, I think that's something I've come across while I've been doing um testing talks or, or workshops is that people will assume PHP unit is only there for doing unit testing, which of course it usually usually is. Um but in the Drupal space we can run different types of tests. There's there's functional tests or the browser tests and browser functional JavaScript tests and integration tests. So there's various sort of different types of tests we can use. Drupal's PHP unit system to run. So um, test traits isn't I, I, something I'm aware of. I've not looked into too much. It's on my list of things to to look at. So I'll uh, have to bump it up the list now. Now you've met Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> much a, a, a layer on top of PHP unit. So if you're familiar with PHP unit, it's it's not there's very little conceptual difference, I think. And you can take advantage of um, features of PHP units. Um what what's um I forget the name. I forget the name of the thing you do now, but you can you create you, it's a data provider, isn't it? It's data providers in PHP unit you can mm -hmm. use in Drupal test rate. So you can have a single um test that you can feed um different uh data into, which as far as I know would be very difficult to do in BHAT even if yeah, I mean, B has not designed to do that. So, um, yeah, you you can take advantage of that of that of that power with Drupal test traits. Yeah, definitely. I look at that more after this. I do quite a lot of testing in TDD, so I have to yeah put that again on my list of things to look at. Just uh, to have a look at it. If there's something, is there one big sort of standout thing from this? project or from this case study that, that you that sort of stands out to you or I think that you would any big thing you maybe do differently if you were to sort of approach this project again um I think um I, I think uh having a very um strong focus from the start on um what what value to be delivered um to the organization and to um country and regional teams and and that how to how to do that most efficiently with with least effort and i think um if if that is kept um i think if that's kept at the forefront of your mind when working on a project like this um then a lot of a lot of the other um decisions follow i think um and it's i suppose 
it's it's quite it's quite difficult to sort of um be in that position where you can have your head in code but also have a, a strong a strong enough awareness of business um requirements or organizational requirements um and it's interesting balance to find isn't it <laughs> it, it yeah, is yeah and nice. i th- I think it was, yeah, it was sort of quite a conceptual, a, a mental leap in in my sort of life as a developer. I think to realise that um, actually that was the most important thing that I could be doing. Um, the co- the code the code would follow, and we had people, we had experts um, who 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 could who could you know Drupal experts who could write great code but the missing part that needed to be filled in was um uh, understanding how um to address those business requirements with with as little code as possible I suppose and um yeah to do that as efficiently as possible yeah as you said what's what's the simplest thing you can do to solve that problem that's usually yeah. something I preach a lot with, with doing like the tdd approach but just in general you know i could i could write a whole custom module that does something or maybe i could do it with views or something else you know, and then not have to take on the maintenance burden and overhead of have to maintain that custom code over time and i think that's just more key now is you know we're not rebuilding projects every three years or something like we're migrating projects from drupal 8 to drupal 9 to drupal 10 and onwards so that code's probably going to be used for a long, lot longer. So the impact of making a decision like, do I write a custom module for this rather than doing something that's maybe slightly simpler, is yeah, it's, it's sort of amplified then because it's going to be there potentially for a lot longer. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This has been a really good conversation. I feel like we could be speaking about this stuff for a, a lot longer, but I'll uh, just keep an eye on the time. Um, uh, if people want to reach out to you afterwards, uh, where is the best place for people to find you online? Um, I'm afraid I'm not not very active on social media. I'm only really on LinkedIn. So um, Ed, Edward Crompton on LinkedIn. Um, sort of been gradually dropping social media. <laughs> dropping off social media, first Facebook and then Twitter and uh yeah, not I'm not on very much. So um yeah, LinkedIn or Drupal.org. Yeah, I'm uh, Eddie underscore C on Drupal.org. I'll keep an eye out. Keep an eye out for you on, on DO then. Um it's always great to see people like in these UQs or and answering posts and things and it's like yeah, it's always uh, interesting to speak to people and uh, put a face to a name as well and especially people i've sort of known within the uk community and the drupal community as well um so yeah thanks for taking the time to jump on a call today and, and go through this with me it's been really useful and uh, you're welcome it's been great away really enjoyed it thank you go away from them um so yeah thanks for joining me uh thanks for listening to the beyond blocks podcast uh, i'm oliver davis thank you very much